0: The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. When was the last time you splurged on something when you knew it probably conflicted with one of your financial goals, like paying down debt or saving for future fun in retirement? Well, if you do this, you're not alone. It's because of present bias, or to use the psychobabble term, hyperbolic discounting. As humans, we have a tendency to let the immediate rewards of the here and now win out over a desired future reality. To learn more, check out the Cash Dash Dash, a planning tool brought to you by The Guardian Network to see just how much your short-term spends might be impacting your longer-term financial goals. Play today by visiting www.livingconfidently.com slash play. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I am joined today by Ashton Cheda. Uh, Ashton will be joining me today in what is the first of a two-part series uh, on immigration and finance. So Ashton, thank you for, for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit to, to start out? Can you tell us just a little bit about your work life? What do you do? Where do you live?
1: Yes. So I am a financial planner. Um, my firm is Opus One Advisors. Um, I am based out of Dallas, Texas, but I live in a suburb uh, in the north of Dallas uh, called Frisco, Texas. And uh, I've been here pretty much since I moved down after graduate school. I've been here for about 25 years. Um, you know, my kids were born here. Um, you know, Texas is pretty much my home. I've spent more than half my life here now. Um, yeah. So that's yeah, that's where I am.
0: Beautiful place. So we're going to talk about immigration and finance today, but I wanted to, before we sort of pick your brain and get your perspective professionally, I wanted to to hear a bit more about your personal story. So would you mind sharing a bit about your own immigration story with the listeners?
1: Uh, No, absolutely. Uh, I'd be very happy to share that. Um, So, uh, you know, my my father actually came to the U.S. uh, from India for his Ph.D. in the mid-50s. Um, He went to actually Oklahoma AM, which is now OSU. And uh, he was an agronomist. Um, He went back to India, met my mother, who was wrapping up her dental degree over there. They got married. And my father had always been interested in academia. So he went, you know, found a great position uh, in Nigeria, West Africa. And he uh, was a college professor at the University of Ibadan in Nigeria, West Africa. My mother was a clinical uh, lecturer in the dental school. They spent 40 years there. So, my two older sisters were conceived there uh, and raised there. And I was born and raised in Nigeria, West Africa. Um, Did my my elementary school and secondary school there. They call it primary and secondary there. Uh, There's no concept of elementary, middle, and high. So, it's just primary and secondary. Um, By the time I was ready for university, the political situation was becoming very unstable. My, my parents had decided they didn't want to uh, leave Nigeria. They already spent more than half their lives there and they wanted to see out their retirement there. But uh, for me, it, it made sense to to go abroad and, and study. So I ended up going to Manchester, uh, England, uh, to do my undergradu- undergraduate degree, which was in electrical engineering. Uh, and then from there... Uh, You know, the opportunities were always going to be in the U.S., and so I came to the United States, went to University of Michigan uh, for graduate school, and, uh, you know, from there I got hired by a Canadian uh, telecom company, a research company called BNR, Bell Northern Research, Uh, and interestingly enough, though they were Canadian, they moved me down to their lab in Richardson, Texas at the end of 1995, where I've been ever since. So yeah, that's sort of my, uh, my journey. So I've, I've sort of, you know, been through multiple continents, lived on multiple com- continents. Uh, but again, I've spent more than half my life now in Texas.
0: So this is just your everyday story uh, of a young Indian man growing up in West Africa, studying in England, working for a Canadian company in America, right? Correct.
1: Correct. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So you've, you've got this sort of rich tapestry of cultural influences. And so by the time you move to the States and Texas is its own sort of cultural tapestry, Texas yes. has its own sort of rich uh, singular culture. What was the most sort of surprising thing about uh, about ha- moving to the states? What cultural tendencies caught you the most off guard?
1: Um, so you, you know, it, it, it's interesting, I guess, because I had you know, I grew up mostly with West Africans. I mean, you know, most of my friends were were, were Africans. My closest friends. Uh, so you know, the biggest culture shock was actually going to the United Kingdom. Uh, mm. You know, because that you know, I went from essentially where you know, 99% of my close friends were, 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 Africans. And, you know, and, and then I went to, uh, you know, you know, university in, in England, where all of a sudden, you know, 90% of my, you know, my friends were Caucasian. So it was actually a very big culture shock for me, which probably set me up well for coming to the United States. Um, you know, and when I came over, uh, you know, to Michigan, University of Michigan is a, is a very strong uh, university. They have, especially in their graduate programs, they have students from all over the world. So, in in a sense, the adjustment was was quite easy. Uh, similarly, moving down to Texas, you know, I moved down, you know, to basically a big city, uh, Dallas. Uh, you know, Dallas. You know, Dallas is a, is a major a major city in the U.S., and so it's it's very very culturally diverse. Um, And so I didn't have perhaps a a shock that I might have if I moved to maybe a small town, if I would stereotype uh, without offending anybody, if I'd moved to maybe a small town in the middle of Texas, it might've been different, but moving to Dallas, not, not so much the case. And especially also working for an engineering company, as you know, a lot of engineers are, you know, from all over the world. So, so I probably had more diversity leaving Nigeria than I did in Nigeria, mm-hmm. um, if that made sense. So, so the adjustments were easy for me once I left England. The adjustments right. were quite easy.
0: And then, quickly, how did you find your way from engineering to the world of finance? So that's that's not a that's not an uncommon transition. I actually see that quite a bit. But I'm interested in your story.
1: So, so, so what's so my story is interesting. I my father had retired from. Um, from the university in Nigeria, moved back to to India, repatriated back to India with my mother in 97, and then was coming back and forth between um, India and the U.S. And I have an older sister in in England who's a dentist, so he would make a pit stop there. And um, in 2001, when he was here, he started to complain that he wasn't feeling well. Uh, You know, all of a sudden, my father actually, up until that point, was very, very healthy, never really had any issues It was my mother who actually had more medical issues. And so we were a little concerned. Uh, I have another older sister here who's a physician. She had him checked out and they found out that, you know, he had uh, cancer, um, uh, you know, and he had liver cancer. And so, again, this is really not about medicine, but what's interesting is a lot of people in India, especially of my father's generation, they sometimes have what they call vertical transmission of hepatitis. They get it from like their mother's breast milk. And apparently my father was a carrier for his whole life and and never knew it. And and one day just manifested in in a form of of liver cancer, which, you know, at that point, once your liver starts failing, you wouldn't know. And then it's, it's it's a very rapid downhill. So my father at that point wanted to sit down with me. Again, typical Indian family. I'm the only son. He's like, look, I need you to look through my finances with me. Not that I expect you to do anything, but I'd like you to just kind of see where things are in case your mother needs, you know, help, uh, at least you know where things are. So when I sat down with my father, um, you know, I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, all his, you know, his finances were, were very nicely buttoned up. You know, he had his investment accounts in the UK, he had bank accounts in India, he had his wills and trusts. I mean, you know, property deeds, everything was very nicely done, uh, meticulously. I think my father was always, uh, you know, a very thorough and meticulous person. And, um, you know, shortly after that, my father passed away. And I, and I realized, you know, just in sitting down with my father that I hadn't done any of my own financial planning. The only thing I had done up until that point was, you know, putting money in a 401k and paying my mortgage. And, and you know, that was pretty much the extent of my planning. I wasn't thinking about anything beyond that. So my father's um, sort of, you know, book, uh, it was very eye opening to me and and I realized that I probably needed to to get some things done and so i um you know uh, reached out to uh my sister and I asked her who she was using and she recommended a, a her advisor to me. Uh, I started working with the gentleman and uh um, you know needless to say I realized in in going through that 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 process with him that um there were a few things I took care of with him, but it wasn't complete. And there was gaps, you know, perhaps in his knowledge base or gaps in his approach. And being a researcher, and engineer, you know, I, I, I need to have something that's very process driven in my mind. Otherwise, there's a disconnect. And so I started to do a lot of my own research and learning. And one thing led to, to another. I ended up getting my stockbroker's license, ended up getting my insurance license, enrolled in the American college to get, you know, my designations and started working with friends and family, mostly as a glorified hobby. And then the hobby resulted in a, you know, a Eureka moment one day. And I said, Hey, you know what, this is actually not a hobby. This is actually a practice and, and it's building. I'm getting referred to people all over the country and my passions are no longer aligned with engineering. So it would be as good a time as any to retire as an engineer and do something that I'm really passionate about. And, and the rest, as they say, is history. So that's, yeah. that's the, how the tra- transition occurred. So it was accidental. It wasn't planned.
0: I find so many people, finance is such a great second career, and I think especially for for people with an engineering background who already have this sort of systematic analytical mindset, I think they're uh, uniquely well-equipped to to do this well. So you've set the table now for this sort of unique career transition that happened very organically as you tried to set your father's affairs in order. Uh, You've set the table for why you might be the most interesting man in the world having sort of had your hand in, in in, in many different cultures. And so we're going to talk today about how some of that experience informs uh, the way that you and the way that other financial planners uh, should, should work with immigrant populations. But before we, before we go to that in earnest, you know, it, would be, uh, it would be strange if we didn't talk for a minute about the impact of COVID-19, because when we set up this interview, it's, you know, it wasn't that long ago Uh, But the world seems to have pretty fundamentally changed in that time. And at first, when when COVID was beginning to sweep across the country, I think I I read a lot of articles about how coronavirus is the great equalizer because, you know, uh, no matter your race, religion, occupation, uh, this is sort of the great equalizer. But I think subsequent, uh, subsequent research has shown that immigrant populations, that people of color, uh, that people who are lower on the socioeconomic spectrum are, are more impacted than this, uh, certainly people in sort of frontline occupations. So what are you seeing with respect to the people that you work with uh, to, the, to the degree to which they have been impacted by the spread of coronavirus?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. Um, so m- majority of my client base are are actually first-generation immigrants to the United States. I would say 80% of them. Uh, majority of them are, you know, white-collar professionals, doctors, dentists. Um, but there's a fair number of them that are business owners. Um, they own IT companies and, and things like that. Um, so what's interesting right now, if I would kind of, uh, you know, split the the client base that I have um you know i'm seeing certain white collar professionals like dentists and optometrists um they're actually having major financial implications all of a sudden because you know a lot of dentists you know they don't really do emergency dental work i mean they do but it's it's mostly elective you go in for cleaning a cavity so on and so forth optometrists it's the same thing and you know with the shelter at home in so many states um, you know my dentists and optometrist clients are actually really starting to feel the financial pinch of not having revenue you know so again you know we've we've certainly counseled them about taking advantage of a lot of the programs that have been put in place uh, like the PPP program and and the disaster relief loans and and things like that but they're feeling um, the financial pressure immensely. Now again a lot of my clients at least who have been listening to me over the past you know they, they they do have cash reserves. I mean they they've done, you know a lot of them have done or taken the the feedback and the advice that we've given them to always have cash reserves on hand and things like that. But in any case you know when you don't know if your practice will come back when you don't know you know if you'll have the same kind of revenue stream um, it, it creates its own set of anxieties, right? Which then can manifest itself in how you look at your investment portfolios. You know, now all of a sudden, they're starting to look at some of the investment portfolios a little differently, even the longer term portfolios. And I'm having to help them work through the behaviors around that. Um, obviously, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a certain element of fear, um, from a financial perspective. And even when they start going back to work, you know, you know how are they going to adequately protect themselves from a medical perspective? Um, so that's one segment where they are really, uh, you know, seeing the implications of that. Um, you know, I have a lot of clients who are doctors. Uh, again, I have ER doctors, I have neonatologists. So I have some that are going to work as usual. Um, there's no implicit financial implications to them, other than a lot of them are. You know, when you have conversations with them they are, you know, obviously genuinely scared. They're, they're in the front line. I mean, they have all the protective stuff, but you know, as some of my, uh, ER doctors have told me, I mean, you could be very healthy and it could, it could take your life. And so there's a, you know, an immense fear factor there that, you know, once they, you know, some of them don't articulate that to me, maybe we're not as close. And some really just tell me, you know, we're frankly scared. Um, a lot of my clients are IT professionals. I mean, they work as engineers and, and uh, you know, software designers and architects. Um, you know, a lot of them are working from home. You know, the, 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 the technology world is, is used to that. I mean, a lot of them used to work from home before anyways, at least part of the time. So they're probably the best group that have adjusted to this in terms of work. They're not seeing any major financial implications to their paychecks yet. Um, uh, except for obviously their 401ks and some of their investment accounts taking a hit. But, you know, from a, from a, from a work perspective, you know, they're handling that fairly well. I mean, obviously if this goes longer, eventually their industry would get hit. And so we're talking through some of those things, but most of them are sheltering at home. They're, they're using the Amazon primes, the Instacarts, you know, they think mostly being responsible and, and trying to make sure they are not contributing to the spread. Um, so they're probably, as a group, are handling this better. Um, I have some small business owner clients, you know, um, they own, uh, you know, um, Taco Bells, they own uh, Subways, they own hotels, motels. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're really struggling right now, um, you know, um, and they're frankly quite scared um, because they don't know, especially some of my clients who own motels and hotels, they don't know how it's going to come back and, you know, in what shape, way or form. Um, and, and that's also a challenge for me because, you know, it's something that, you know, you can study about it in textbooks and you can deal with, uh, you know, corrections like 2008 or 2001, but this is medical. So, you know, this is, there's, there's no real, uh, blueprint, you know, the world has changed a lot since the Spanish flu of 1918. And so, you know, it's, it's also a challenge for me in counseling a lot of clients around that, um a lot of my clients are concerned about their families back home. You know, they have families in India, India has shut down Dr. Crosby for a long time. I mean, you know, they, in fact, I, I believe last week they extended their shutdown another two weeks. And so that's also a concern. Uh, you know, um, I know we are sending money back to my, uh, my uh, father-in-law and my, my wife's family, because uh, they're not perhaps as well to do. And, you know, my brother-in-law is not getting paid. He works as a, you know, a hardware, uh, computer repair person. So he doesn't have work. He's not getting paid. Um, and so, you know, they're, you know, we're sending money back home obviously to, to kind of help them, but you know, and then places are smaller in India. And so when they're there, it's very hard for them to move around. So there are a whole set of challenges there as well. A lot of my clients are dealing with that with their extended families back home. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, certainly makes for very challenging And interesting times. I've had a few clients actually um, come down with with COVID. Thank God. And thankfully, uh, none of them have been admitted to hospitals. They're all in various stages of recovery at home. Um, So at least, you know, know, at least the people that I know that have been, you know, affected by this themselves with the actual virus, again, thank God they're they're recovering well at home. Um, And so that is kind of where we are.
0: No, thank you. There's, if if you don't mind, there's a couple of follow-up questions I'd like to ask because you, you gave some really uh, fascinating context there. I'd like to, I'd like to focus on your uh, the dentists, the optometrists, and the small business owners. So the ones that are perhaps the most impacted by this and the ones that are, that are dealing with the most uncertainty. So just from the behavioral lens from, you know, my seat as a psychologist, first of all, we know that the only thing people hate more than bad news is uncertain news. You know, this is, this is a conversation. My wife and I have had uh, many, many times throughout this uh, coronavirus crisis. We say, God, we just, if we knew what to prepare for, you know, it would be one thing, even if it was tough, if you knew how long it would last and what it would require of you be one thing, but not knowing what the market will do, not knowing if, you know, what, what the food situation will look like, not knowing what the school situation will look like. It's very, it's very unsettling. And there's a sort of this low hum of anxiety. So you, you also mentioned, I think very astutely that it changes the way that they look at their portfolio. So we also know that emotion you know, whether or not you're in a good mood or a bad mood impacts the way you view identical financial information. So I just wanted to drill down a bit and hear, what are you, how are you counseling these, these clients? Are you taking more of a sort of a friend first handholding approach? Are you trying to show them market statistics that show that, you know, dips in the market have historically been good buying opportunities? How are you approaching these people that are dealing with this sort of unprecedented level of insecurity?
1: Yeah. So, you know, so my, uh, you know, my, I think, you know, my, my style and my mindset and my passions around my industry are always related to, you know, uh, being a very relationship oriented individual, but I'm still, still a scientist at heart. So a lot of the times my focus with uh, my clients initially is really just, you know, empathically listening and really trying to Understand what they're dealing with, and and really for me to step in their shoes and imagine that I was in the same situation, right? First and foremost, you know, again, thankfully, uh, I'm I'm going to take a revenue hit with my business, but you know, I, I follow my own advice, and my business is fairly stable um, for the most part. So I think I, you know, you know, from that perspective, I don't have those anxieties, but I try to put myself in their positions, um, first and foremost, to, you know, really let them know that I am listening to them. I am understanding where they're coming from. And, uh, you know, for a long time, I always educate my clients to think about their money in terms of buckets, right? I'm a big proponent of this bucketing concept, right? So rather than having one portfolio, that's a 70-30 or a 60-40 or an 80-20, which we know scientifically and theoretically will still work. I like to, to to educate my clients to think in terms of buckets of time. And so maybe it's a little different approach, but, you know, you know, I tell my clients or right, you know, in the next, if we're thinking about your planning, let's bucket out, bucket ice out your money. So for example, you know, zero to three or zero to four years of expenses, I always want somewhere where, you know, you have access to it and it might be invested, but it's going to be somewhat conservative, right? You know, maybe years four or five on out, you know, might be a little bit more aggressive, and you know, buckets that are really we're not going to touch, ten plus years out, we can perhaps be more aggressive. Um, But understanding again the differences between risk capacity, risk tolerance, all of those things. So I've I've always educated my clients about you know bucketizing their money. You know, and again, the clients that have listened to me, you know, I have a conversation with them. I say, look, you know, you you've been sitting on this three to four year bucket of money that's um, mostly in, you know, conservative instruments. I mean, if at all, you've taken a hit, it's been very small. Um, You know, the buckets that are further out, um, you know, yes, it's painful to see it, but let's go through and understand how history can teach us, you know, what happened in 2008, what happened in 2001, what happened in 1987. And again, you know, just because, you know, things have recovered in a particular way. We understand they may not recover the same way, or they might, but history generally is a great teacher. And so I try to kind of keep my clients focused on, you know, the concerns they have now and not have it translate to something that could probably impact them later because they made a drastic move. So I find when I use a bucketing technique, um, I'm able to manage their behavior better. Now, of course, the clients who haven't listened to me, <laughs> unfortunately, we're in a little bit of a different situation, and we just have to deal with that,
0: right? Sure. So, Ashton, you may not have known this, but you're doing a lot of really behaviorally complex uh, counseling and planning there because – absolutely. You know, yeah, you know, the this whole idea of bucketing is based on the behavioral principle of mental accounting, which is that people spend money and save money and invest money differently depending on how it's labeled. So I wrote an entire book on bucketing. I'm a huge advocate of bucketing. And I think people who have had a safety bucket that they expected to spin down uh, in a time of market turmoil are in a much better position than those who didn't and you know I, I love this sort of blended approach of you said you're both you're you're both an empathic person and a and a scientist and at you know at at my firm we have a three part process for for counseling clients through a difficult situation and we call it purpose proof and process so the purpose is the empathy it's recentering that person on what matters to them why they came in, in the first place recentering them on the plan The proof is really the the science, you know, sharing with them a little bit of market history, giving them some guardrails for what a recovery might look like in terms of of size and scope and timing. And then process is getting them engaged in sort of moving forward, making good decisions. So you're doing a lot of a, a lot of really fantastic stuff. From uh, from a, from Thank a you. B- behavioral perspective, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, you you mentioned something else. You mentioned sending sending money home. So, I lived in uh, I lived in Southeast Asia for a couple of years. Uh, I was a professor at a school in Hawaii for a time that had a very diverse uh, population, um, largely Pacific Islanders, and many of the many of the students and and the employees at that school would send money home to their parents now to the to the caucasian american mind this is an entirely foreign concept right we're very uh, as a as a collective very individualistic very like i'll get mine you get yours so if someone is uh, coming from a place of financial abundance certainly sending money home is is no problem and that's that's a kind and a generous thing to do and that's no problem. Do you, do you ever run into clients who are sending money to others though for cultural reasons that haven't sort of put their own oxygen mask on who haven't secured their own financial house and and if so how do you counsel them in a way that's uh, respectful of that cultural imperative but also uh, maximizes the probability that they'll reach their own financial goals?
1: So great question, um, uh, Dr. Crosby. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I have a lot of my clients um, where they don't even realize that what they're doing is inefficient, right? In their minds, they're, 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 they're stable. And so they're very happy to send money back home. Um, but in their minds, they're stable. As a professional, I know they're not, right? And then there's some that, you know, are clearly unstable, but they're still doing it. So let me segment the two, right? So I'll have a lot of clients who are doing well. Um, you know, they're they're good middle class, upper middle class, they're making good money, um, you know, and and so they're sending money, you know, every month back home. Um, And so they feel that, you know, everything is good. They're investing for their own retirement. They're doing all of the right things um, and then sending money back home. But what I think they're failing to see and where I really try to help educate them is I really try to make them understand that the source of all of this capital is them, is their ability to work, is their ability to generate a paycheck. Um, and so if something were to affect that, if something was to perhaps they get disabled tomorrow, um, perhaps they're driving and they hit a the pedestrian and they get sued, God forbid they die, right? What happens to not their, not just their immediate families? dreams and aspirations, meaning their, you know, their kids, college, their spouse, spouse's retirement. Now what happens to their aged parents back home that they're supporting? um, Or maybe their siblings, you know, uh, you know, in India that are not doing as well, right? Like we support, again, I mentioned we support, you know, my, my family back home uh, on my wife's side. So, you know, I have to realize, and I have to get my clients to realize that all of that is really our income source more than anything else. And that has to be protected first and fully. Um, Then we can move on into, you know, our own financial stability of, um, you know, making sure our kids' colleges are taken care of and retirement is taken care of because otherwise, you know, are we expecting somebody to help us later? Uh, You know, I always kind of joke around with my clients and say, listen, um, your first generation immigrants over here you come with this um, cultural mindset um, that you bring, and you know you take care of your your parents and relatives back home, and that's a really noble thing. Um, but I want you to realize one thing, and I'm in the same boat. I have three sons; uh, they're growing up in the, in America. They are Americans, and yes, while they may pick up on a lot of our culture and value systems, they still go to school here. They're still used to the uh, American way of life, and they're they're Americans, and so they're going to grow up with slightly different mindsets Um, and they might not have the same, they might, or they might not have the same mindset that you do. And so if you don't take care of your, you know, your own retirement as an example, um, you know, you might have a real problem. So I have to kind of tell people who don't realize um, that they are not as secure or stable as they are, how they should think about it. And again, I start with this idea of make sure you protect your income. And then make sure you fund your buckets, and then you can, of course, um, start spend, you know, start helping, um, you know, family back in India. And then there are some people that just clearly know they're not in a good place, and they really want to, you know, help family back in India because maybe they're in a worse place. And so now it's more a question of just, you know, budgeting and, and making sure that, um, you know, we're saving as best as we can. We're, we're doing the things we have to, but I have to be respectful of that. And just help them, you know, try to budget through, uh, you know, how to fund that. Now, the good news is obviously um, a dollar goes a long way in rupees, <laughs> so you know, you, you know that's the good news, right? So, so when you send, uh, you know, two hundred dollars home a month, um, it, it'll go a long way. I mean, it, it'll, you know, it'll get, you know, depending on which part of India you live in, and, and so on and so forth. So, at least that's in their favor. Sure. Well,
0: there's a, there's a couple of things I really like about how you how you position that. You know, the first the first thing I think you did is you make the implicit explicit because it's this this whole notion. We we all grow up in these cultures. You know, we we grow up in these cultures. But in the same way that a fish doesn't know it's wet, we're always not aware of our cultural assumptions until we encounter a culture with countervailing cultural assumptions. And so you have to say, like, look, you're, you're making the implicit explicit to these first generation folks you work with and saying, look, you, you're in a different, you know, you're swimming in a different pond now and your kids may not have the same expectations that you grew up with. So you're really sort of highlighting those. And then the second thing that I like is that you're giving uh, you're giving advice that is a you know sound advice, but b is couched in terms that are respectful of their cultural imperative. Like I want you to send money home, and the best way that you can ensure that you're able to spend money home is by securing your own income and not making it you know contingent on on things that are a little more uncertain. So I think that's that's a good. Uh, whether we're working within or outside of our own cultural disciplines i think that's a a great sort of framework to keep in mind to be respectful respectful of those cultural imperatives uh, but to but to uh, you know give give sound counsel inside of that so you yeah, you yeah. Oh,
1: go ahead go ahead no no and i was going to tell you so you know the 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 other thing i i wanted to mention to you is is you know what's also interesting is i also remind my clients that there are certain things they do here that their parents in India never have to do like, you know, one of the big things as we plan with our clients, you know, again, with immigrant families, um, you know, they're big proponents of higher education, a lot of them came here for their graduate school, or, you know, a lot of them came here. And from the graduate school, it, 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 it you know, it took them to the next, you know, it, it's, it's allowing them to live the American dream. Um, and so, you know, they want that for their children, uh, obviously. And, and we know how expensive college is, right, in the U.S. And it, it tends to inflate higher than regular inflation. And, and so a lot of our work is around counseling our clients to think about um, college planning uh, because it's so important, right? It's actually challenges back home that, you know, they never have to think about, right? I mean, college in India is very manageable. In terms of... Um in terms of price uh, relative to what people make. And so I remind them of things like that, that, you know, you're almost a sandwich generation now. You're, th- <laughs> you're thinking about taking care of your parents or, or, or relatives, and, and you also have to worry about your children. And it's something that, in a way, your parents didn't have to worry about because the cost of education, you know, in India and a lot of other places is, is much more reasonable, right? And so I kind of just have them start thinking about that a little bit so we can temper... Um, things and, and maybe just really get them to understand, you know, it's, it's, they are in a a little bit of a unique and different situation than, than their families in India were. So
0: you've done a great job of anticipating my, my question, which was just to sort of highlight how the how in general, right, the financial concerns of a first-generation American family may differ from that of, say, a, a fourth or fifth-generation American family. So you've highlighted the, the potential need to send money back home. Uh, you've highlighted uh, some cultures... Um, in the importance of education in some cultures as as sort of a sign signpost of having made it and how expensive college can be. Uh, what other uh, what other considerations are there that might might differ with with first generation folks?
1: So what's interesting with a lot of my first generation clients is you know especially depending on how long they've been here they you know it's kind of funny I always make this expression you're 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 living with uh, one leg in, in a suitcase. Right. So, you know, a lot of times when I'm working with clients, um, you know, they have this mindset that they will not retire here. They will go back to, to India. Um, um, which is interesting because I give them my experience in doing this now for 16 years where I say, you know, I, you know, especially my more recent clients, I say, you know, that's, 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 that's great. We're going to account for it. And think through it, because obviously, if you go back to India to retire, you need property there, you need all of these things, there's a different set of challenges, your children will live here, so you'll go back and forth, kind of like my parents did, but also also tell them these things will change, because what's going to happen is, you know, I've had clients for 16 years where that was their mindset, and now the kids getting older with, you know, just time spacing things out, it's changed. So we have to be able to pivot, because that might happen. But if it doesn't, you know, you're probably going to have to set up two homes because your children are going to be here. So even if you quote unquote retire and you decide you want to live six months offshore, you know, there's there's two households now that you have to think about. So it's, it's 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 uh, you know, it's interesting way it becomes another part of our planning process to kind of think through that. Also, a lot of my clients, um, you know, uh, are on H1Bs. And I don't know if you know Dr. Crosby, a lot about the immigration, the way immigration works here. But a lot of my clients are on H-1Bs, and if you are unfortunately, uh, or rather, if you have the 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 you know the unfortunate luck to be born in India, because the 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 H-1B actually goes by the country of birth. So I was born in Nigeria. So even though I'm of Indian origin, it didn't count as much. But if you are born in India, the cues are ridiculous. You will have people that will be on H-1s for 10 to 15 years before they get their green card. Because you would think the queue is first in, first out across the world. It isn't. It's based on your country of birth. And obviously, India. a lot of Indians come here uh, for higher education. So the queues are very long. So there's a great deal of anxiety that they have about their immigration status. In fact, one thing I should have mentioned to you earlier when you asked about COVID, but it it didn't dawn on me until now, is I'm dealing with a whole segment of my client base that are extremely um, concerned about their immigration status because they're on H-1s. H-1s get renewed every so often. And if they don't get renewed, they only have a certain number of days that they can legally stay in this country. And so they're always dealing with that level of anxiety uh, that you know if our H-1 doesn't get renewed, what happens, which holds them back from making perhaps certain decisions that are really going to be in their best interests if they didn't have to worry about that. Um, and that's another, you know, challenge that I have to deal with in my planning is my clients that are on H1B visas.
0: So here this is a question that I, that's just come up for me right you've explained so many things to me that that are indeed sort of outside of my area of expertise so if if someone uh, if someone has a client if a financial professional has a client who is from outside of their own culture and they may have some culture specific or immigration specific uh, needs how would you best advise that financial professional to go about getting up to speed to serve the very particular needs of, of that client?
1: So, so I think, well, one is obviously cultural, right? Just understanding what their value system is and, and, and what's important to them, right? The other thing is um, if, if there's a young financial advisor or, or, a fin- or an experienced financial advisor that's getting into this market of working with more immigrants who are on those kinds of visas, it's extremely important to perhaps um, get some time with an immigration attorney just to understand all the nuances that go into, um, you know, what it takes, right? Now, again, if you're working with immigrants from most other parts of the world, the cues are very fast. I think um, my understanding is it's India, China, and I, I believe Mexico, but I could be wrong on that one, but definitely India and China, that have very, very long H-1B queues um, that are incredibly long. And so most other countries, they're fast. Like if you were born in Nepal, you, you had your H-1B, you'd probably get your green card within a couple of years. Um, again, not counting today's situation because I think everything's slowed down. Um, but places, if you're working with Indians, uh, yeah, you better understand from an immigration attorney all the steps that these guys go through And then you'll understand and then put yourself in their shoes. You're working here. You're living here. Your children are growing up here. Now, if you're lucky and your children are born here, um, you know, at least that's a good thing because they're citizens. But I have clients that have been on H1, Dr. Crosby, for 12, 13 years. Their children weren't born here, but they're Americans. So what happens if these clients are forced to go back to India because their H1B doesn't get renewed or they get laid off and they can't find a job? within 90 days, I think, you know, think about they've lived now here so long. Think about the implications that they're going to go through. And then more importantly, their children. So those are things that if you work with immigrants from India, especially technologists, you really have to understand that and understand what they're going through. Otherwise you won't be able to solve problems for them in a way that's going to work. Because if you take the traditional approach and you start doing, you know, life insurance, you start doing the disability insurance, you do the investments, you do all of these things, and all of a sudden they get laid off, they can't find a job, and they have to go back to India, it will mess up the planning. I mean, first and foremost, your disability is not going to work because if they get disabled, most disability contracts don't pay if you're living anywhere but U.S. and Canada. So if, you, if, if, my, if an immigrant gets disabled and he can't work and he has to go back to, uh, to India, the disability is going, to, is going to stop after a year. None of these carriers are going to pay it because they don't know if there's fraud occurring or not. It's very hard for them to tell. So there are those kind of challenges you have to develop in your practice, which again comes with experience as you keep working with them.
0: Yeah, no, just, just from our brief conversation, I can tell that, you know, taking a cookie cutter approach to this uh, would, would land you in a world of, of trouble potentially, just because the needs... Of first generation immigrants are so specific and there's so much to consider there's a lot of ramping up you would have to do to get the the sort of requisite expertise for sure yes. so wh- one of the things that I found sort of my my last question before we get to the lightning round uh, in a former life I was a counselor and again I spent I spent some time in Hawaii uh, in a in a school setting where there were students from you know 75 different countries. It was just really, really diverse. It was really fascinating melting pot of, of cultures. And I found when I was doing my counseling that many of the interventions that had worked well with longtime residents of the US did not work well with international students. So for instance, if you're having family problems, um, Caucasian Americans are, are very happy to to talk about their families, even if it casts uh, people in a negative light. But I would work with uh, some populations of Asian students, and they were very, very uncomfortable saying negative things about their family members, even if those family members had done uh, some pretty tough things to them. So are there any other sort of culturally informed financial tips that you could share? Just things to keep in mind when dealing with immigrant populations that people like me, who may be trying to fit a, a square peg in a round hole, can do to just be more culturally informed or more culturally sensitive?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, as one of the things, you know, as a good uh, financial advisor is, you know, you, you know, I tend to spend a lot of time with my clients um, really understanding them and, and really trying to build a very strong relationship with them, which is, you know, at the end of the day, money is about trust. So the stronger the relationship, the more personal relationship you can have with your clients, of course, within a professional setting and within the time that you have, becomes more important, right? So I I usually um, take a more counseling type approach with my clients, especially in the first couple of meetings, which is more discovery based, um, to really try to get them to open up. And I do that more by asking very open ended questions, um, as opposed to sitting there and lecturing them on, well, I think you should do this, I think you should do that. I mean, that might come later. But very early in my practice is very much about open ended questions, right? You know, obviously, I ask them, you know, you know, how, to, how they got to where they are, you know, what kind of sacrifices they had to make, what their families had to do. Are they happy where they are? Do they, you know, do they see growth for themselves? How do they anticipate growing? What do they want for themselves and their children? Um, you know, and then, I, you know, what, what perhaps is holding them back, you know, as they think about extended family, um, you, know, um, you know, how do they think about, you know, their connections with extended family, especially if it's 3,000 miles away? So I ask them a lot of that. I I also, again, as a financial planner, I do ask them, you know, we're going to talk about your wills, your trusts. It's important to understand who you would pick as guardians and who you would not pick. Um, So it's important to understand, you know, which of those family members you think would be better guardians for your children if you guys were not there. Um, Which of your family members might be appropriate trustees for a trust? Which ones might not be? And so I ask those kind of questions where it's almost like they have to give me the answers. Otherwise, I can't plan for them, right? And so then slowly they open up and I start to see, you know, the, the, the dynamic between them and their extended family and other things that might be holding them back or might not be holding them back. So it's really about just, you know, lots and lots of discovery type questions and sort of leading them slowly as opposed to just telling them what they need to do.
0: So the, the reason I think there's, there's two reasons I think a detailed discovery process is such a good idea. You know, the first is just the, the nuts and bolts of if you're working with a complicated case, you know, many of the issues you brought up today you know, wouldn't emerge if you were taking a a sort of cookie cutter approach to working with your clientele, they would only be unearthed in a detailed discovery process. So there's sort of a practical reason. But I think there's also a relational reason, right? The discovery process is where the two of you get on the same page, you're able to exhibit empathy and care And and interest, and I think all of those things lay the uh, foundation for a really solid relationship going forward. So I'm absolutely on the same page with you there. So Ashman, in closing, we like to do a little segment where I do a free association. I I throw out a word or a phrase, and you just tell me uh, the the first thing that comes to your mind. Oh boy! (laughs) Uh, I know. Get ready. it's not going to be too bad. Okay, we're going to start start with a softball the best thing about living in Texas?
1: Oh, the best thing about living in Texas, uh, mild winters, wide open spaces, um, you know, low cost of living, yeah?
0: Yeah, no state income tax, right? There you go. <laughs> Ooh, jealous of that every, uh, every tax season. Um, the most broadly overlooked financial tip?
1: Ah, okay, so this one is small, but over time it's huge. Uh, The backdoor Roth. Um, So we think about, you know, higher and higher likelihood of taxes going up. I mean, think about what's happening right now with uh, the stimulus package, deficits, all of that. I mean, remember, there's only really from a macroeconomic perspective, there's only two things that could, you know, uh, be an outcome of this. Either it's going to be increased taxation or we're going to just print money. So. You know, as we, especially with my younger clients, you know, I tell them, hey, you know, think about this backdoor Roth. It's it's a great way to create some tax diversity, um, you know, in your long-term planning um, as you inch closer towards retirement. So you're not completely at the whim of a of a government tax rate as you take money out of a tax-deferred plan. So I think it's a simple thing to do, but it's very overlooked.
0: Very good. Perfect. Perfect answer. Last one, your favorite finance book.
1: So actually there are two <laughs> So so, uh, so I'm going to give you both. Um one is a real, is a real classic, uh it's The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. Um it, it can be a bit of a dry read, but it's good insights into how to invest and I think if clients read it, uh you know, it it'll give them a little bit more insight and maybe help them not panic so much. Um the second is not really a finance book, but as an advisor who coaches clients to make really good decisions, you know, I have to think about how to get them to move in a, in a direction that's actually in their best interest over time. So I always tell my clients, you know, sometimes you're negotiating with yourself, not with me, as I'm trying to get you to do something, but you just don't realize that your future self will thank your present self. So another great book, um, which has helped me a lot in my practice, and in many ways, most financial advisors would never even have thought of this book, but they should, it's a classic. It's getting to yes, negotiating agreement without giving in. It's by Roger Fisher and William Ury. Um, so it's 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 a really good book. I have a you know that book. I've had it for years, and every so often I go and read through it, and it just it helps me a lot.
0: So I have said before uh, that persuasion is sort of the the skill, the the mother of all skills for financial professionals because. You know, if you're trying to make a sale, what is that but, you know, trying to persuade someone to part with their money in exchange for, you know, you managing their money? If you're trying to manage behavior, what is that but persuading someone to do something difficult and stay the course when every fiber of their being is screaming for them to sell? You know, Um, if you're trying to be a leader in your organization, what is leadership but persuading people to? work in service of a common goal. So I'm absolutely on, on point with you there that, that books on persuasion and, and getting to yes are at the very heart of good uh, financial advice giving. So thank you so much, sir. You have been an invaluable resource today. I have learned a ton and I know the listeners will as well. Thank you so much
1: for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
2: All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents, including Park Avenue Securities and the Guardian Network. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information participants consider reliable and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian copyright is a registered trademark of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2020 Guardian Ashvin Chedda is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities LLC PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS member FINRA SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Copyright Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Opus One is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Opus 1, and opinions stated are their own. AR Insurance License Number 8068544, California Insurance License Number 0809883, 2021-131160, Expiration twelve slash two thousand twenty three.